Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1106, with a release and air date of Saturday, May 9, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1106 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC is providing flexibility to volunteer examiners in developing remote testing methods. Amateur radio exams go al fresco in Norway and right here in the United States. The FCC okays unlicensed operation in the 6 gigahertz band. A man trapped on an amateur radio tower is rescued by his local fire department. The Radio Society of Australia launches a new Welcome to Amateur Radio guidebook for newcomers. AMSAT solicits nominations for the 2020 Board of Directors. We will have all the latest cancellations and word on events that are going forward. And space agencies around the world are sponsoring a planet-wide hackathon. We will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's going on with all of those amateur satellites orbiting the planet. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about why your IoT, or Internet of Things, devices don't seem to work on 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. And we'll also take a close look at our fondle slabs. Australia's own Anno Benshop, VK6FLAB, asks for permission to be curious. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill presents part two of The History of Amateur Radio Repeaters. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will tell us how to correctly mount electronics on the tower. And we will flash back to the 1988 Dayton Hamvention and find out about all the new gear that arrived during this week's Classic Rain. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our new socially distanced, isolated, and UV-lit headquarters studio here in Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. Reporting from our ultra-secure virus-proof dugout in the Catskill Mountains, where it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Paradise in Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, I'm Fred, November Fox, 2Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where we're still trying to figure out what season of the year we're in, near freezing Saturday, then upper 70s to 80s next week. I'm sure confused, but I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR, or so I'm told. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. 
Our lead story this week concerns remote testing in the United States. The FCC has clarified that nothing in its rules prohibits remote amateur radio testing, and no prior approval is needed to conduct remote exam sessions. For more on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this report. The FCC said in an April 30th release, quote, The Commission provides flexibility to volunteer examiners and coordinators who wish to develop remote testing methods or to increase remote testing programs already in place. We recognize that some volunteer examiner coordinators may not have the immediate capacity for widespread remote testing. We expect those volunteer examiner coordinators with limited remote testing capability to work closely with those requesting such testing to prioritize any available remote testing slots, unquote. ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, said she's gratified to see that the FCC appreciates the need for remote testing. Soma also said that as states begin to lift restrictions, the possibility exists to restart in-person amateur radio exam opportunities. Many of our VEs and VE teams have been employing remotely proctored exam sessions with both video and in-person components and following social distancing protocols where necessary, she said. Some ARRL VE teams have shown great promise in administering exams remotely. We urge our VE teams to keep up to date so they can make informed decisions based on local community guidelines, as each community is unique, she said. Our volunteers should use their best judgment when deciding whether or not to begin conducting in-person exam sessions. It's important to us that you feel confident when choosing your course of action, because the health and safety of our VEs and the examinees is the top priority. VE teams that choose to conduct in-person sessions should restart consistent with local restrictions and guidelines. To find amateur radio license exam sessions in your area, visit the ARRL website. Candidates should verify with their VE teams that the exam session is being held and if any special procedures are required to attend. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission has approved the unlicensed use of frequencies on the 6 gigahertz band to enable operation of the proposed Wi-Fi 6E standard. The vote on April 23rd had been watched by Intel and Broadcom, two major industry players looking to expand smartphone and tablet capability. Broadcom's first Wi-Fi 6E chipset was released in February. Until the vote, only licensed users could operate on the 6 gigahertz spectrum. They included telephone companies and utilities, cable TV relay links used by newscasters as mobile links while doing live reporting. The FCC had also approved unlicensed use of the entire 1.2 gigahertz spectrum for low-power devices used only indoors, another plus for Wi-Fi users. The FCC is seeking public comment on an April 24th request by Garmin International for a declaratory ruling or a rules waiver to obtain equipment certification for a handheld unit that combines a low-power terrestrial Part 95 multi-use radio service transmitter and a Part 25 emergency satellite communication module in the same device. Section 95.2761, subpart C, precludes combining MERS transmitting capabilities in equipment 
that is also capable of transmitting in another service, with the exception of Part 15 unlicensed services. Garment's proposed product is a handheld unit that will include two transmitters, a low-power MERS transmitter for short-range terrestrial communication, and a previously certified Part 25 module that will allow emergency communication via the Iridium satellite system under a blanket license held by Iridium. End-users would have to subscribe to the Iridium service. Garment argues that the purpose of the original equipment authorization restriction was to prevent consumer confusion with other terrestrial services that either had different licensing regimes or were for different types of communications, and that it is inappropriate in this case. Garman asserts that a waiver would serve the public interest because the certified Part 25 module in the MERS unit would allow emergency communications to the outside world at the push of a button. The FCC seeks comment on the waiver request. Comments are due by May 28th, with reply comments due by June 13th. Interested parties may file short comments via the FCC's Electronic Comment Filing Service. Visit the FCC's How to Comment on FCC Proceedings page for information on filing extended comments. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. With some states starting to relax restrictions on events and activities, the Grant County, Oregon Amateur Radio Emergency Service held an in-person exam session on April 26th in the town of John Day that adhered to social distancing recommendations. Exam organizers held the gathering to within Oregon's 10-person limit for gatherings, keeping everyone six feet apart and requiring all participants to wear face masks. The exam session was held outdoors under a carport. We had an exceptionally successful test session with candidates passing exams at every amateur radio level, said Ed Ellison, AF7YX, the ARRL Volunteer Examiner Liaison for the Grant County Amateur Radio Club. Grant County Emergency Coordinator Steve Fletcher, K7AA, noted that many clubs had canceled their planned sessions due to the pandemic. Grant County decided to approach the problem by obeying all the restrictions but still holding the exam, he said. As a result, we had people come here from all over the state. In Oklahoma, the Middell Amateur Radio Club, W5MWC, administered an open-air exam session on April 25th that held to social distancing guidelines. Over the course of the three-hour session, 16 candidates tested and all were successful. One candidate passed all three exam elements to come away with his amateur extra class license. Another open-air amateur exam session took place recently in Norway. IARU Region 1 reports on how a club overcame the virus restrictions to hold an amateur radio exam in a country where online exams aren't available. On the IARU Region 1 site, Don G3BJ writes, 
The local amateur radio club, LA3F, south of Oslo, had just completed its annual course for would-be radio amateurs. The latest three participants were just ready for their exam when the virus struck. We can all imagine their frustration when Norway started to shut down activities and meetings for an indefinite period. A normal exam was not possible due to the strict rules of physical distance and limitations on the number of people who could meet. At that time, Norway had strict rules on not more than five people together, minimum with two meters physical distance and frequent hand washing. So in order to get these three new amateurs on board, LA2RR Oli agreed with the Norwegian regulator to hold an outdoor exam where all these guidelines were obeyed. Armed with all the necessary paperwork and with antibac for hand disinfection, he met with the three candidates in the forest outside the local scout cottage. Here, in the open air, there are tables a minimum of five meters apart, so with just the four of them, it was easy to meet all the guidelines to hold a safe written exam. Although early spring in Norway, the temperature was around 10 degrees Celsius and everybody had dressed warmly so that the temperature out in the forest could not be used as an excuse should any of them fail. Oli is happy to report that all three candidates passed and we can all welcome LA5EUA, LB8QI, and LB8RI to the world of amateur radio. In a dramatic rescue in Rapid City, South Dakota, firefighters freed an amateur who had become trapped on a friend's amateur radio tower, pinning his arm there. The 66-year-old man, who was not identified in local media reports, was about 20 feet above the ground, and a tool known as the Jaws of Life was used to free his arm from the retractable part of the tower. According to media reports, the man had climbed the tower on April 29th to assist his friend. He was not wearing any safety equipment at the time. There was no update on his condition or the extent of any possible injuries. We remind listeners as our tower climbing guru, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, always says, please be careful and use proper safety procedure when working on towers. The Radio Amateur Society of Australia is pleased to announce the release of a free guidebook for all newcomers to our hobby. If you are new to the hobby, or a club looking for additional reference material to support new members, the Radio Amateur Society of Australia Welcome to Amateur Radio Guidebook provides an introduction to our hobby for newly licensed foundation class amateurs. The book is published digitally. It contains many hot links to external websites with useful information. It's available as an Acrobat PDF file suitable for reading on a PC or tablet. It can be printed if required. It will also be available as an ebook for the Kindle, Nook, and Kobo readers, as well as the Apple Books app in the next week or so. There are still canceled events, and one of them reflects a proud tradition involving ships that formerly served in the military. Hams who are eagerly awaiting the chance to operate from a battleship for Museum Ships Weekend in June will need to wait until 2021. Organizers have canceled the event, which was scheduled to be held on June 6th and 7th. The Battleship New Jersey Amateur Radio Station said the event was being called off to predict the health and safety of everyone involved, noting that many of the participating ships had already been shut down in response to the pandemic. In Texas, HAM-COM 
which has already scheduled to be taking place in early June, has also been canceled. Announcing the cancellation, Ham.com President Bill Nelson, AB5QZ, said the event will take place on 2021 on June 17th through the 19th. There's good news, however, if you're getting ready for the Radio Society of Great Britain's annual Islands on the Air contest. It's still going forward on July 25th and 26th, but will be adhering to safety guidelines. That means only single operators will be participating using their home stations. There will be a downloadable certificate instead of trophies this year for the winners, and another change from last year, signal reports will be mandatory for each QSO. There's also good news for fans of the MicroHams Digital Conference that's been held each year since 07 by the Microsoft Amateur Radio Club. It's going online as a free visual streaming event on YouTube on Saturday, May 9th, starting at 8.30 in the morning, Pacific Daylight Time. Presenters will include David Rowe, VK5DGR, the author of the Free DV and Codec 2, and John Wiseman, G8PQ, the author of BPQ32. The conference will be recorded on YouTube and can be viewed later by anyone who may have missed the live stream. New Zealand amateurs are also returning to the popular Backyards on the Air, or BYOTA, for one final event on Saturday, the 9th of May, as the nation moves out of lockdown. Operators will be on the air from 0000 UTC to 0200 UTC. Although hams will be sorry to see it go, it's a sign the lockdown will soon be lifted and there will be a return to the summits in their future. A recent contact between school kids and the International Space Station succeeded by making use of something new. It is called a multipoint telebridge. Dave Parks, WB8ODF, explains. It was an heiress contact with school children that was like no other before it, an experiment that worked. On April 30th, a group calling itself the Northern Virginia School Group in Woodbridge, Virginia, successfully engaged in a short question-and-answer session with astronaut Chris Cassidy, KF5KDR, aboard the International Space Station. It was accomplished with the first-time use of a multipoint telebridge contact. Some 200 miles above the planet wasn't the only participant in relative isolation. The students, some as young as five, were asking their questions from home-based lockdown, as Chris, using the space station call sign NA1SS, responded. The connection between Earth and sky was made with the help of Fred Kemmerer, AB1OC, who relayed the questions from his southeast New Hampshire QTH. John Klute, K4SQC, moderated the event from his own lockdown QTH outside Atlanta, Georgia. Eris chairman Frank Bauer, KA3HDO, called the event a great strategic move for Eris. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. On Wednesday, the 29th of April, 2020, EI4GNB in Ireland managed to complete a digital FT8 contact with LY2YR on 40.220 MHz on the new 8-meter band. Not only was this an EI to LY first, but it was also the very first contact made between any two countries on the band. 
The distance was approximately 2,039 kilometers, and the mode of propagation was sporadic E. It should be noted that while Lithuania does not have an official allocation at 40 megahertz, the licensing authorities in the country have kindly given LY2YR special permission to carry out experiments on the spot frequencies of 40.220 megahertz and 40.680 megahertz. This is a model that could perhaps be copied by other interested radio amateurs in other countries. It may be a lot easier to get special permission to use spot frequencies for a limited period of time rather than a general allocation. It is hoped that there will be activity from Slovenia very soon, and hopefully this will generate more interest in this fascinating 8-meter VHF band. International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 Virtual Emergency Communication Workshops got underway on April 29th, when the first of the programs in English and Spanish, What is Winlink and its Importance During Emergency Communications, was presented in Spanish. Workshop presenter Alfonso Tamez, XE2O, of the Mexican Federation of Radio Amateurs, offered insights into the usefulness and application of Winlink during emergencies based on his ample experience, offering participants an understanding of the importance of having such a tool available during an emergency. Workshop attendance was far greater than expected, with more than 180 participants from at least 18 IARU Region 2 countries on hand. A question-and-answer session followed the formal presentation conducted using the Zoom platform as well as through IARU Region 2's YouTube Workshops channel. The workshops are free of charge. Workshop participants expressed their satisfaction as well as a desire to continue with more workshops as soon as possible. An English-language presentation of the same workshop took place on May 6th. Signing up for future workshops must be done online and not via email. The IARU Region 2 Executive Committee appointed Augusto Gavaldani, OA4DOH, as workshops coordinator to set up processes for the initial group of workshop sessions and to develop and to manage ongoing workshops for radio amateurs in IARU Region 2. Here is the schedule for the remaining workshops. Wednesday, May 13, 2300 UTC. MCOM WinLink 101 in English, targeting U.S. and Canadian radio amateurs. Instructors are Mike Burton, N6KZB, and Jason Trembley, VE3JXT. Wednesday, May 20, 2300 UTC. Satellite Communications 101 in Spanish, aimed at radio amateurs in Latin America and the Caribbean. Instructors are Matias Greno, LU9CBL, and Guillermo Guerra, XQ3SA. Wednesday, May 27, 2300 UTC. Satellite Communications 101 in English, targeting radio amateurs in the U.S., Canada, and the Caribbean. Instructor will be announced. Contact Gamaldani with requests for future workshop topics, volunteer speakers, or other comments or suggestions. Several special event stations are on the air to mark 75 years since the end of World War II. In the UK, GB4WV, the V for victory, and G0SFJ will operate through May 11th. 
Listen to G75VET through May 28th. The Guernsey Amateur Radio Society is operating GU75LIB through May 12th to mark the liberation of Guernsey in World War II. The RSGB Contest Club will field special call signs GB1945PE, GB1945PJ, and GB75Peace throughout May and again through August to mark victory in Europe and Japan. This is not a comprehensive list of special event stations marking the end of World War II, so keep an ear on the bands for others. AMSAT is soliciting candidate nominations for the 2020 Board of Directors election set for later this year to fill the seats of three incumbent directors whose two-year terms expire in 2020, Tom Clark, K3IO, Mark Hammond, N8MH, and Bruce Page, KK5DO. AMSAT members may further elect up to two alternate directors for one-year terms. Valid director nominations must be in writing and require either one member society or five current individual members in good standing to nominate an AMSAT member. Send written nominations in electronic form, including email or electronic image of a paper document, including the nominee's name, call sign, and contact information, as well as the nominator's names, call signs, and contact information to AMSAT Secretary Brennan Price, N4QX, 300 Locust Street Southeast, Unit E, Vienna, Virginia, 21180-4869, with a copy to AMSAT Manager Martha Saragowitz. Fax transmissions cannot be accepted because the AMSAT office is closed. Petitions must be received no later than June 15th. A new NASA mission making use of a half a dozen CubeSats will study how the sun generates and releases giant space weather storms, known as solar particle storms, into planetary space. Not only will such information improve understanding of how our solar system works, but it ultimately can help protect astronauts traveling to the Moon and Mars by providing better information on how the sun's radiation affects the space environment they must travel through. NASA said of the new sun radio interferometer space experiment called Sunrise Project. The mission will involve an array of six CubeSats operating as one very large radio telescope. NASA has awarded $62.6 million to design, build, and launch Sunrise as early as mid-2023. NASA chose Sunrise in August of 2017 as one of two Mission of Opportunity proposals to conduct an 11-month mission concept study. In February of 2019, the agency approved the continued formulation study of the mission for an additional year. Sunrise is led by Justin Casper at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and managed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. We are so pleased to add a new mission to our fleet of spacecraft that help us better understand the sun, as well as how our stars influence the space environment between planets, said Nicola Fox, director of NASA's Heliophysics Division. The more we know about how the sun erupts with space weather events, the more we can mitigate their effects on spacecraft and astronauts. The six solar-powered CubeSats will simultaneously observe radio images of low-frequency emissions from 0.1 to 25 megahertz from solar activity and share them via NASA's Deep Space Network. The constellation of CubeSats would fly within six miles of each other. 
The CubeSats will create 3D maps to pinpoint where giant particle bursts originate on the sun and how they evolve as they expand outward into space. This, in turn, will help determine what initiates and accelerates these giant jets of radiation. The six individual spacecraft will also work together to map, for the first time, the pattern of magnetic field lines reaching from the sun out into interplanetary space. NASA's Missions of Opportunity pair new, relatively inexpensive missions with previously approved host launches. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Coming up, my Wi-Fi doesn't work with my IoT device. What do I do? Stay tuned. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Your problem is not Wi-Fi access. Your problem is the band. Most modern routers, including your very nice Asus router, are tri-band, at least dual band. Yours is tri-band. That means one 2.4 gigahertz frequency and one or two 5 gigahertz frequencies. Dyson and many other IoT devices just won't work with 5 gigahertz. Unfortunately, some of them will actually join a 5 gigahertz network not knowing the difference, and then be unusable. So there are a number of solutions to try. In some cases, I don't know if this is true. I think it is true, actually, on your Asus. You can temporarily turn off the 5 gigahertz band. So before you pair that Dyson vacuum cleaner, go into your router settings and say, turn off the 5 gigahertz radios. I don't want those working. And then the uh, Dyson will, without any problem paired to the 2.4 gigahertz don't worry it will stay paired to that it won't join the five in most cases uh, and you should be okay now if it does from time to time switch over to the five there's another choice with that asus router you can have different names for the different bands so you can have asus 2.4 g and you can have asus 5g using a different ssid a different name should keep that dyson from accidentally joining the wrong band but that's not possible in all routers. It's not possible to turn off 5G in all routers. For example, the Eero router currently, as we record this, does not let you turn off the 5G radio or rename it. Uh, I'm told you can call Eero support and you can say, hey, turn off 5G temporarily and, <laughs> and they'll do that. Then you could pair the Dyson. It would pair to the right frequency. And then you can call them and say, okay, you can turn it back on now. That seems like a lot of work. Eero says they are going to add that capability to the firmware down the road. I have one more trick and it's the funniest trick it's a very old school trick it was uh, uh, shared with me i think from one of our uh, chat room listeners during the radio show because we had somebody ask a similar question and i didn't even think of this but it's brilliant turns out 5g does not travel as far as 2.4 gigahertz so here's what you do and this is wacky 
you go outside. You take your Dyson robotic vacuum cleaner for a little walk. And you walk far enough that you can no longer see the 5 gigahertz, but you can still see the 2.4. Now, your house is small, so you may have to go some distance. You might even have to go out in the street. But at some point, you're going to lose that 5 gigahertz, and you're going to be able to pair the Dyson to the 2.4 gigahertz and then come back inside. I know. I know that's crazy talk, but it actually works. It takes advantage of the fact that 2.4 gigahertz goes a lot farther than 5 gigahertz. How far? Well, I think if you get beyond 100 feet, you're probably okay. Uh, 2.4 gigahertz will go as far as 150 feet. 5 gigahertz is a lot shorter. I think once you get past that 100-foot mark, you should probably be okay. It may take a little trial and error, some experimentation. But that, <laughs> that is one way to do it. Easier to do it with the vacuum cleaner than, let's say, a, uh, a, a, a camera doorbell. Um, that might be a little bit more tricky, but you can do that. So there's a few ways you can get your IoT device off the 5 gigahertz band, which it can't use. And unfortunately, still today, there are a lot of IoT devices that won't work on 5 gigahertz and onto the 2.4 gigahertz band. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, QoS is not going to help, unfortunately. Uh, adaptive QoS, QoS stands for quality of service, simply means that it will apply, if it sees you watching Netflix, it will give more bandwidth to Netflix than to your email or your browser because Netflix needs a more consistent rate of packets. That's all. It's not going to change the frequency or the band. Um, and, and many routers will kind of choose an appropriate uh, channel but that isn't going to help either. You just have to get off that 5 gigahertz band entirely. Uh, let's see. What else can we talk about? It's so hard sometimes to remember how things used to be. We're like a fish in the water. We don't really we're – we're surrounded by it, but we don't really – we're not really aware of the water. We're not, we're, we're not well equipped to notice how things have changed. Occasionally, you know – Old timers like me will say, I remember when you had to go into the bank to get money. You had to go in the door and there were people inside. I remember <laughs> when you had a little machine hooked up to your telephone line and it had a <laughs> paper, a little crinkly up paper, it would spit out documents. I remember when you had to call people to talk to them. And now we just, you know. Well, I'll tell you what, when's the last time you made a phone call? I know a lot of us still make phone calls, but I think that's starting to die out too, right? We don't, we don't even think about the phone aspect of a smartphone as much as we're now talking about the camera. Camera's number one, right? The screen, the games you can play. Well, that's another thing that's changed. We cannot stand. I notice this now with myself and with everybody around me. We cannot stand to sit idle for even one second. You're in an elevator, you pull out your phone. You're in a grocery line, you pull out your phone. People don't just look around anymore or talk to each other. They, they, they pull out their, their little amusement device. The register calls uh, smartphones fondle slabs. <laughs> the register's a British uh, tech publication. They have the kind of British attitudes to all, to all this. But the idea is it's a slab of glass. They're all basically the same, right? That you fondle. I was noticing the other day. So I'm, I'm standing there and I'm, and I'm, what was I doing? I can't remember. Oh, I was, I know what I was. I was on a, uh, on a light rail train on the way to the football game, to the 49ers game. And it's a crowded train and it's a, you know, 20 minute trip. Uh, on the light rail, 
And I'm looking around, a lot of young people all have their phone out. And I'm kind of being my stubborn old man guy. I didn't pull my phone out. I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to look around. I'm going to talk to people. Nobody wants to talk to you. They're looking at their phone. Okay, I'm not going to talk to people. I'm just going to look around. Man, it's boring in here. <laughs> but then I pulled out my phone. I did. I, 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 I could do it about three minutes. <laughs> and, then I, and then I pulled out my phone. And there, it's not like there's compelling content on there. I almost I look at it and I go, well, I, did, oh, I already looked at Instagram. I guess I could look at my Facebook feed. Nothing new there. Anything going on on Twitter? Well, there's always something new there, but none of it makes any sense. <laughs> so you're kind of still staring off into space, aren't you? You have different stimuli, but it's not like you're learning something. <laughs> or maybe you are. Maybe maybe you're. Maybe you don't. Maybe you use use your uh, time to good. You you have an iTunes U college lecture all queued up that you can listen to at two minute increments. Is it just me? I'm nervous about pulling my phone out of my pocket at the gas station. We've heard that. I don't know how true this is, but the static sparks can be generated from pulling your phone out of your pocket. You're not supposed to use your cell phone while you're pumping gas. Did you know that? I don't think anybody knows that. I think there's people, I see people who smoke cigarettes. Well, <laughs> that is definitely not supposed to happen. At least, at least uh, with uh, your fondle slab, you're not going to blow the gas station up. Or are you? I hope you're not. Anyway, keep it in your pocket. Of course, Anytime there's a bunch of people and mostly young people doing that, then there's a whole bunch of people, mostly people my age, going, you kids, pay, smell the air, stop and smell the roses, look around you, see what's going on, life is happening and you're missing it. I don't know, is it, are you missing it? You're missing the stuff that's immediately around you, but at the same time you have a portal, a window into a whole different world. Just because it's digital doesn't mean it doesn't exist in some form or fashion. I think the stuff that you do and see and play on the internet, I mean, I don't know, is that any more or less a waste of time than looking around and <laughs> seeing what's out the window? I have to say, when I was sitting in that light rail train, I felt like I was wasting my time not using my fondle slab. Probably shouldn't say that in public. Not using my smartphone. <laughs> I feel like looking out the window, well, that's nice. Looking at people, they start to think, why is he looking around at me? What's he... What's he doing? Why isn't he looking at his phone? Are you a creep? Why aren't you? Why aren't you looking? I did. I felt like a weirdo not looking at my phone when everybody else is. It's like being in the library, and everybody's quiet and looking at their books, and you're looking around. It just doesn't work. Anyway, I just uh, just a thought. You know, I think we are moving towards a more balanced. I hope we're moving towards a more balanced approach to this, where we recognize that it's not the end all and be all to have the smartphone and stare at it all the time, that there is other stuff going around, but at the same time, not rejecting it. We need balance, right? These things are useful. You've got a supercomputer in your pocket that's always connected to the internet. You can, you can, you know, in the 15 minutes that you're standing in the line at DMV, you could, you can find out what's going on around the world. That's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. 
We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. In our last installment, we traced the development of FM and repeaters from 1932 up to 1970. Since the FCC rules at that time had no provision for repeater operation, stations in repeater service were operated under the Part 97 provisions covering remote control. The FCC, in February 1970, came out with docket number 18803, which set forth the Commission's proposed repeater rules. These included small subbands set aside for repeater operation, a ban on linked, cross-band, and multi-band repeaters, a requirement for whistle-on or other tone control, and a requirement that the licensee of a repeater station be in attendance at the transmitter or at an authorized fixed control point to monitor all transmissions of the station. In regards to the 2-meter band, the FCC set up the repeater subband in such a way that two-thirds of it would not be accessible to technicians. Reaction was quick and negative. The ARRL and others felt that the proposed rules were so restrictive that they might be the end of amateur repeater operation as it existed at the time. Counterproposals, far less restrictive than the FCC's, were submitted to the Commission. While amateurs waited for the revised FCC rules, another problem had to be solved. When 2-meter FM operation started in the 1960s, 146.94 had been chosen as the national simplex frequency. This was the highest wideband FM frequency available to technicians. After repeaters came along, amateurs discovered that the surplus commercial equipment in use at that time had a maximum bandwidth of 600 kilohertz. Thus, 146.34 was chosen for the first repeater input. However, in areas where 9.4 was already in heavy use by simplex stations, 146.76 was then chosen as the output. This led to the problem of non-standard splits, and in some areas of the countries, repeaters such as 3476, 2894, and 3482 could be found. The frequency 146.94 was a battleground between the simplex versus repeater groups. Amateurs were also fighting a minor battle over 146.64 MHz, which in some parts of the country was a DX simplex frequency. To make matters worse, all transceivers back then were crystal controlled. With crystals at $10 per pair, it cost $120 or about $450 today, to fill all 12 channels in a 2-meter radio. It was possible to equip your radio with the repeaters and simplex frequencies used in one area and then find all of your channels were useless 200 miles away. A national plan was needed. The Texas VHF-FM Society proposed such a plan, which was described in the May 1972 issue of QST. In it, the repeater offset was standardized at 600 kilohertz. 146.94 and 146.64 became repeater outputs. 
146.4 through 146.58 became simplex, and 146.52 was chosen as the national simplex frequency. In the 146 through 147 megahertz range, accessible to technicians and above, there were 13 repeaters and 7 simplex channels. The 147 through 148 range, available only to generals and above, had 14 repeater and 6 simplex channels. Note that in the Texas plan, all repeater inputs were 600 kilohertz below the output, even in the 147 through 148 MHz range. Except for changing the inputs to the high side above 147 MHz, the Texas plan was adopted. The gradual acceptance of a 2-meter band plan still did not resolve the FCC issue. The Texas plan, as good as it was, violated the FCC's 1970 proposal. The Commission still had not issued any repeater rules, nor had they acted on the ARRL's 1969 request to give technicians the full 2-meter band. Finally, in September 1972, the FCC issued new rules covering repeaters, logging, portable, and mobile operations. Liberal repeater subbands were authorized at 52 through 54, 146 through 148, 222 through 225, and 442 through 450 megahertz. Logging requirements, especially for repeater and mobile stations, was simplified. Repeater operators no longer needed a tape recorder hooked up to their stations. The requirement for a portable or mobile station to notify the FCC of operation in a particular radio district was also reduced. No longer would amateurs contemplating a cross-country trip with their radios have to write to each district on their journey in order to inform the FCC engineer in charge about the trip. Repeaters would have to be licensed. Call signs beginning with the prefix WR would be issued. The repeater license application was complex. Each applicant for a repeater license had to submit certain data to the FCC regarding the technical, operational, and effective radiated power of the proposed station. Whistle on or tone control was no longer required. Two repeaters could be linked, but multi-linked or cross-band repeaters were prohibited. Repeater monitoring and control requirements were made more flexible. And finally, the FCC acted in part on the ARRL's 1969 proposal. Although they did not give technicians full 2-meter privileges, they did grant them access to the 147 through 148 MHz segment. Technicians could now operate all 2-meter repeaters without violating FCC rules. The new FCC repeater rules, coupled with the Texas plan, caused a surge in 2-meter FM activity. It also was the shot in the arm the hobby needed to fully recover from the decrease in growth caused by incentive licensing. Manufacturers such as Drake, Standard, Regency, Tempo, Genève, Clegg, and Midland poured rigs onto the amateur market. Heathkit had the very successful HW202, followed by the even more popular HW2036. The increase in the number of technicians on 2-meter FM finally killed the technicians are experimenters, not communicators theory. And finally, thanks to 2-meter FM, amateur radio grew by over 33% in the 1970s. In 1975, due to increased demand, the FCC authorized the use of 144.5 to 145.5 MHz for repeater operation. Technicians were given access to this subband. In 1978, the FCC relaxed the rules, 
eliminated the separate repeater license and the WR prefix and gave technicians the full 2-meter band. From 1978 through 1981, the synthesized revolution took place, as affordable PLL and microprocessor rigs drove the last of the crystal-controlled radios off the market. Today, a name-brand 2-meter HT costs about $135. With it, you can access over 4,000 repeaters or scan the VHF high band. Compare that to 1972, when a crystal-controlled radio equipped with 12 channels cost $300 or about $900 today. We have truly come a long way. In our next installment, we will look at a couple of licensed proposals in the mid-1970s and the controversy they caused. I hope you will join me. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Foundations of Amateur Radio The other day I stumbled on a social media post titled So You Want to Be an Astronomer by Andromeda321 on Reddit. Look it up if you're interested how she puts together the prerequisites from her perspective as an astronomer. Apart from the fact that a few of my friends are astronomers, one even a radio amateur, and I have to confess that's a combination that's exciting and intriguing, it got me considering how you become a radio amateur. In my mind, I started putting together lists and links and other prerequisites that help you become an amateur, when it occurred to me that being an amateur is, in my view, a state of mind. While it's true that there is a licensing process that gives you transmission privileges, that to me is not what makes an amateur. When I started my amateur radio involvement in 2010, I'd seen amateur radio exactly twice. Once as a sea scout during a jamboree on the air at the end of the 1970s, and once when my manager parked his tiny car, I think it was a champagne-coloured Daihatsu charade, with a massive 40-metre or 80-metre vertical in the car park at work. As I started learning about amateur radio and passed my test, I'd commenced the journey into what I now consider to be membership of the amateur community. That same journey is undertaken by people across the planet. For some, it starts like mine, with a course. For others, it starts with a neighbour, or a parent, a friend, or an aunt. They might start with listening to shortwave radio, or playing with electronics. People start their journey at all different places and times in their life. There is a perspective within the amateur radio community that says that you're not a real amateur until you've passed a test. I don't think that's right. Passing a test is part of the experience, and you may or may not start there, or even pursue the test. That doesn't describe your radio amateur status. That's just giving you responsibilities and regulations that permit you to expand your thirst for knowledge. In my experience, the real test of being an amateur lies in something much simpler than that. Being a radio amateur isn't a profession, it's a hobby. An amazing one, but a hobby. I know that there are plenty of amateurs that will argue that it's a service. I don't deny that there is a service aspect, 
but that doesn't take away the rest of the community. It adds to it. You might wonder why I'm even bringing this up. The reason is that all too often our community erects fences. You don't have a license. You don't know Morse. You only have an introductory license. You only own a cheap Chinese handheld, followed by, you're not a real amateur. I think that you're an amateur when you decide to be one. So, if you're not yet here, what's stopping you? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, May 8th. The sunspots we reported last week have vanished, which is typical behavior during a solar minimum, and the solar flux index is stuck at about 70. There is a stream of solar wind that could graze the Earth's magnetic field on May 10th, and that may cause some issues for the higher bands. The key word, however, is may. This blast may miss us completely. On VHF and UHF, all the tropo openings we reported last week in the southern United States have dissipated. However, we're seeing a decent chance of activity over Lake Michigan, between Michigan and Wisconsin, in the days to come. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. Last week, we announced the opening of our new AMSAT online membership portal. If you thought about joining or renewing your membership, thank you. A feature that we are happy to have finally moved towards is a members-only area. In that area, you will be able to read full-color copies of the AMSAT journal. In fact, we would like to provide you with the March-April 2020 issue absolutely free. You can download and peruse your very own copy at tinyurl.com slash ans hyphen mar APR journal. The 2019 and 2020 journals have been loaded and more will be added in the future. Guatemala had their first satellite, Quetzal 1, deployed from the ISS. Its primary mission is to test a sensor for remote data acquisition. The downlink is 4800 BPS GMSK on 437.200 MHz and a telemetry decoder software is available from dk3wn.info, then click on Software. And finally, nominations are being accepted for the AMSAT Board of Directors. More information is available at amsat.org. Click on ANS124. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. The Amateur Radio Linear Transponder, Sideband and CW, on the new Russian DOS-AAF-85, or RS-44 satellite, has been activated. Dmitry Pashkov, RU-4AAB, explains that RS-85 is a small scientific satellite built by specialists at information satellite systems and students at the Siberian State Aerospace University. The satellite's name commemorates the 85th anniversary of the Voluntary Society for the Assistance to the Army, Aviation, and Navy, the organization responsible for military training of Soviet youths. This is the third satellite created by the specialists of ISS Rechnikov, which is based in the Ubayanev platform and features a hexagonal prism structure with a body-mounted solar cells. It was launched into orbit last December 26th from the Cosmodrome, and is in an elliptical orbit with a perigee of 1,175 kilometers, an apogee of 1,511 kilometers, and an inclination of 82.5 degrees. Transmitter power is 5 watts, 
and the beacon is on 435.605 MHz, identifying as RS-44. The transponder is inverting, with uplink centered at 145.965 MHz and downlink centered at 435.640 MHz. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One question I got via email concerning tower-mounted electronics and where to start. Here's what I did on my latest 900 megahertz install. Concerning feed lines, I used the 900 megahertz band for a one-way link between my recording studio at home and the local repeater for airing this week in amateur radio. Feed line loss at 900 megahertz is horrible unless you intend to spend lots of money on pressurized semi-rigid feed line. One solution to this problem is to mount the electronics on the tower and limit the feed line to say two or three feet. It's easy to run 115 volts AC up the tower. Make sure the wires you choose to install are the outdoor type with three wires. Also check with the tower owner to be sure it's legal to do so. Probably any lighted or registered tower would require you to, to run the power wires through conduit. Actually, running conduit on the tower is rather easily since it's generally in a straight line. Okay, so you've installed the power to the place where you intend to mount the electronics and antenna. Your next job is to find a suitable cabinet. If your space requirements are small, like the size of a small HF rig, you're in luck. For those needing to obtain and tower mount a larger cabinet, here's how I handled a couple of those projects. First, we gathered all the equipment to be put in the cabinet on the tower and arranged it to take up minimal space but allow sufficient cooling airflow. Then we located a cabinet that came close to the size and height and width. I took it to a local welding shop and had them cut all the way around the outside, splicing five inches of steel to make it deeper. After the bill was paid, I sealed it with silicone and paint and tested it with a water hose for a watertight seal. I did install two drain holes in the bottom just in case. For smaller projects, marine battery cases work well for housing tower-mounted electronics. You'll need a mounting bracket of some sort and some holes in the box, but they're cheap and durable. Hamfests are good places to look to pick up plastic boxes for outside mounting. I found several with molded-in nuts for mounting, clear plastic doors with key locks for real cheap, my favorite two words. Some common mounting devices for electronics on the tower are hose clamps, antenna U-bolts, most brass screws and nuts, as well as custom-made brackets from scrap steel. If you live in an area with a large industrial area, try to get to know someone that works as an industrial electrician who can help you scrounge old steel electrical cabinets, scrap steel, wire, and other hardware. Most of my best outdoor installations were made from old control cabinets destined for the scrap steel bin or the landfill. And while you're building your tower-mounted box, be sure to consider how to safely put it on the tower and gain access to it. Remember, money spent on books and videos relating to tower safety is always money well spent. Invest in your safety soon. Don't be a statistic. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR.
Where were you on Friday, April 29, 1988? Rain's founder, Hap Holly, KC9RP, along with thousands of others, was attending the 1988 Dayton Hamvention, his first. In those years, the Hamvention was held at the Hara Arena, both inside and out, often in rather wintry weather. After getting back from his first three-day ham show of shows, Hap filed the following audio report for the Chicago-based Bear Broadcast Employees Amateur Repeater Information Service. The Dayton Hamvention. How do you capture the immensity of such an event? It just can't be done, so I won't try. What I can do, however, is pass along some observations. First, I must compliment DARA, the Dayton Amateur Radio Association, on a masterful job in organizing and running the world's largest hamvention. Some 30,000 hams from around the world attend and spend some $20 million in Dayton, Ohio, during this three-day extravaganza. As you drive into Dayton, the W8BI 2-meter repeater at 146.94 megahertz is buzzing constantly with thousands of mobiles looking for directions to the Hara Arena, a massive complex that hosts everything from hockey games to rock concerts. Incidentally, the locals have voted the Hara Arena dry, so no booze is served. But for a buck, the customer gets a soda that must be the 24-ounce size. And remarkably, it's not all ice, just partially. There are literally hundreds of booths, or tables, just in the exuberant area alone. The outdoor flea market boasts some 2,000 spaces. And exhibitors? There are aisles and aisles and more aisles of commercial exhibitors, varying from the small t-shirt and engraved badge vendor to the multi-table displays by the lights of Yesu, Icom, and Kenwood. Here's Roberto, WD9FXC, who spent a lot of time hobnobbing with the major manufacturer that Dayton Ham mentioned with a report about new equipment unveiled there. We'll start with ICOM. First, we attended the seminar on the ICOM 781. This super $6,000 rig is subjected to an 80% duty cycle, 48-hour burn-in, and all alignment is checked and tested in Washington before shipment to dealers. This HF rig with the uh, CRT display and all the different features has been the talk of the ham community since its announcement. Next is the ARD 1500-watt computer-operated continuous duty linear covering 160 to 12 meters. These two pieces of equipment will really bring your shack into the 21st century. There's also a dual band ICOM 32A 2 meter 440 handheld with 20 channels, full duplex, 5.5 watt output, rugged military look, and it's the same size as the Yesu dual bander. For 2 meters, there's a new IC228A 2 meter mobile with more bells and whistles, plus a multicolor liquid crystal display. Finally, there's a nine-position automatic antenna switcher, model EX627, for the modern antenna farm. Kenwood's most exciting introduction is the TM621A, dual-band, two-meter, 220 mobile. The twin to the 721, which is for two meters and 440, and is already out. This is a beautiful and easy-to-use rig with simultaneous receive on both bands and allows any combination of operation. I was really surprised. This from a company who three years ago said they would never make 220 equipment because there was no market. For 1,200 megahertz, there is the new Micro 1.2 
TH55HT with one watt output and the TM521A mobile with 10 watts. No comment on ATS950 this year. Yesu's new products are the FT747 lightweight liquid crystal HF all mode transceiver. Since I first saw this unit at the Sterling Hamfest, which was a blue plastic box that was very light and fragile, Yesu has changed this rig to their standard gray and upgraded the cabinet considerably. They got the message early that a radio that's advertised as inexpensive and simple to use should not look and feel cheaply made. I like the Dayton model much better than the Sterling sample. Three new VHF and UHF radios are also out. They are the FT-212, 312, and 712. These are my favorite, with every option available plus a digital voice recorder that is capable of storing a message or ID in your voice or the person's voice who's contacting you and leaving the message by the user or listener via the touchtone pad. It also has a lock button. Those of us who have the micromobiles will love that feature. No more bumping the microphone button or knob and excusing yourself for transmitting on the wrong frequency. The 736 multi-mode, multi-band bass rig was a sellout, and the reps were very happy and surprised at its success. One final comment. On the Tentec Paragon, its workmanship is fantastic, and it looks better in real life than it did in the picture. That's it for Dayton 88. I brought home four bags of literature, but these are the hottest items I wanted to tell you about. This is Roberto, WD9FXC. As with any flea market, the Dayton Hamvention flea market was the scene of some red-hot bargains. The Royal Motel in downtown Dayton was a hotbed of activity, too, Saturday night, April 30th. Hotbed as in fire. Dave Floyd, KK4CC from Marietta, Georgia, was staying in that motel. I caught up with Dave the next day. Rubens, PU2AJO, and myself were sitting in my car talking to Brazil on 20 meters. And we began to see the orange glow coming out of the hotel we were parked in front of. So we uh, jumped out and thought we'd try to lend a hand with what we could do. And what we were able to do is to wrap on a lot of doors and drag people out and inform them that there was a fire going on in the hotel. How concerned were you about the safety of those people or about yourself? Well, we were pretty concerned because the fact that a lot of the people who were made aware of the fire initially were just standing around not knowing what to do. Based on the fact that we've been able to do some communications work and disaster training before, we helped get the emergency vehicles inside the area also to help the people as best we could. How many people were involved? We had a group of 12 hams up from the metropolitan Atlanta area. Of course, they all were pressed into service immediately. And there were 13 rooms in total involved in the fire. We probably pulled out, I would say, six to eight people. Uh, What time of night were we talking about? It was around 10 o'clock in the evening. Get anyone out of bed? There was one couple that we did wake up who had not been aware of the fire, and they were directly in the building behind where it was. Was there just one or two buildings involved in the fire? It was one building, a block of 13 hotel rooms. Was that block then closed? Uh, yes, it is. It was about a $500,000 loss, we found out, according to a news broadcast that I heard on the radio, I believe. Now, am I correct that you and Rubens were the only two specifically mentioned in the April 30th, 1988 paper? That's correct. It's the, the Dayton Daily News. Any injuries at all? There were some fire people injured, we understand. 
How long did the fire go on for? I think about an hour before it was brought under control. How did you determine who was going to go to what rooms? Uh, we just more or less dispersed our group, assigned various tasks to help the emergency vehicles and then to alert several blocks of rooms that we were close to, just lending in hands and stuff that we have had some experiences in in communications training before. Did you use your handhelds? Yeah, we all grabbed them that had them available that weren't uh, discharged and uh, took off. What fan did you use? We were using a uh, Simplex 440 frequency. Did that make a difference? Yes, it did. We were able to alert people in the rear of the complex where the fire was, the need to move various vehicles around, private vehicles, to allow the emergency vehicles to come in. One thing, Rep, I might add to the, the discussion here is that we attempted to do an emergency patch on one of the local repeaters here in Dayton to report to the fire department. And we were asked to verify the fact that there was a fire before they would allow us to use the emergency patch. And as a result, someone hung up the patch on us, and we had to use private telephone in order to call the fire department. Sort of defeats the whole purpose of auto patch, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I think people should be a little more aware that if someone is reporting a legitimate emergency, they need to be a little more mindful of that. And perhaps one should handle the call first and then ask questions later. Yeah, we kind of suggested that maybe they uh, go ahead and shoot from the hip and then aim a bit later. Any other observations about the situation? No, but it was a hot time in Dayton that night. More from HAP's first Dayton Hamvention in a moment. This is the Radio Amateur Information Network. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. We'll be right back. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. At his first Dayton Hamvention back in 1988, Hap Holly KC9RP conducted a number of interviews inside his Hamvention booth. The following are short excerpts from a handful of those interviews that he later would package for his RP report. Many have the misconception that amateur frequencies above 440 MHz are rather static when it comes to propagation. Not so, says Rusty Landis, KA0HPK, editor of the VHF, UHF, and above information exchange. 1.2 and above are very good very much enhanced by tropospheric ducting. Some contacts in excess of uh, 900 to 1,000 miles have been made last spring when we had a very, very intense tropospheric ducting. Vern Jackson, WA0RCR, is a net control station for the Gateway 160-meter net, which meets Wednesdays at 8 o'clock Central Time on 1.860 on 160. Though the ambient noise level is a problem for many potential users of this band, the band has much to offer, even during the daytime. Daytime you get optimum coverage out to sometimes 200 mile radius on ground wave. In the afternoon, you can get coverage even this time of year down into Georgia, the East Coast, Michigan, and like that at two hours before sunset. Spring and summer months, surprisingly, uh, and in the wintertime now, it'll sometimes open up. I've worked Florida at 1 o'clock noon on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. It's not an all-the-time thing, but uh, it's surprising what the band will do. Operating the low-band rig from your car can be a frustrating experience from an RFI standpoint. Don Hibbert, WD8NFX, addressed that issue. He's Senior Electronics Technician at the General Motors Electromagnetic Compatibility Laboratory in Milford, Michigan. 
even though the uh, there's been a lot of technical advancements made, the HF rigs are still much larger and much heavier than uh, VHF rigs, and you want to make sure that they're bolted into something solid, preferably the floor well fastened to the dash if you're going to mount them there. The antennas, of course, are larger and require special mounts. Some of the uh, larger magnet mounts that are available for HF antennas we found to work very well. Typically, though, you will go to a bumper. Just about everybody's cars these days have plastic fascias on the bumper, but behind every plastic fascia is a metal bumper of some type. One of the ways to get to that is to design your own mount in a U-shaped affair so that you can go behind the bumper, come down, and come back up again to the front of the bumper to mount either a ball mount or a stud mount of some type for the HF antenna. Pick up the Sunday edition of the Cincinnati Inquirer, and chances are you'll find Ham Call, a bi-weekly amateur radio column, written by Joseph Phillips, K-H-Q-O-E. Phillips walks a journalistic tightrope, writing for both the amateur and non-amateur reader. Absolutely the toughest thing I do every time when I stand in front of the freight, that blank screen and I look at it. I have to make that decision as I start off, who am I really addressing? I don't know that I've ever solved the problem. I've struggled through it through two years. I don't know that I've ever solved it with any ease. Every time I go out to speak to ham radio groups, and I do it about once a month, that's the first question I ask. Would you please help me with this problem, folks? And people do, do try to make suggestions, but they recognize it as a tough call. If I am too simple so that I overdo it, I turn off and insult the very audience that we have, the ham radio community. If I get too technical and try to go too much into the jargon, I shut off the people whom we'd like to reach. And so it's a dilemma. That's one I've struggled through for two years and probably will struggle for two more at least. Bob Brown, KW3F, has organized the ANARC, Association of North American Radio Clubs, Shortwave Listeners Net, which meets weekly on Sundays at 1400 UTC on 40 meters, 7240 kilohertz. The net targets both hams and as the name implies, shortwave listeners. The shortwave community has been accepted by the ham community, and I'm getting letters that tips that I can give the shortwave listeners as to what they can do to, to get into the ham hobby, how they can find equipment, introduce them to the ham fest flea market type of scenarios. And yes, I would say that once the shortwave listener gets involved in shortwave listening and finds that he's got some hams to work with, that little bit of the fear goes away and they find that it's really not that big a deal to get a license. Some of them are actually studying to get a license just so they can join us on 40 meters. The Mexico City earthquake of September 1985 leveled hundreds of buildings and killed thousands. Carlos Sartorio's XC1HC was there. Suddenly I start seeing buildings completely destroyed like pancakes. I mean, the, the last floor, the top floor was a ground level. So people and nurses and doctors evacuating the hospital close to the office. Two blocks away I saw people even trapped trying to wave like a little flag looking for help. At that time it was very easy for me to get into the city because I guess a lot of people tried to look at the TV or hear in the radio what happened, if it was bad or not. But in my case, as I was telling you before, I thought it was like another quake. It wasn't a major one. And those were some of the brief excerpts from interviews conducted at the 1988 Dayton Hamvention for the RP Report. We trust several of them will be of special interest to you. As a final note, if you've never been to the Dayton Hamvention, it's a must-see, must-experience phenomena that will boggle the mind and lighten the wallet. 
Your handheld will never be the same after it's been through three days of constant RF bombardment there. You, however, will feel like you're someone special when you walk into a restaurant or fast food emporium and the employees smile, not stare, when they see the HT on your belt. Whatever you do, don't miss Dayton in 89. And that concludes Hap's first audio report he compiled from his first visit to the Dayton Hamvention. With cooperation from the Dayton Amateur Radio Association, DARA, Hap recorded hundreds of Hamvention forums between 1990 and 2018 for the RAIN Report. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR, bidding you very 73 from the Radio Amateur Information Network. An update of the popular MMSSTV slow-scan TV software is now available. Eugenio Fernandez, EA1ADA, has introduced YONIQ, which he calls a modern version of MMSSTV. We are excited to finally be able to offer the entire radio community the revamped MMSSTV with the nickname YONIQ. Also in English, he said, YONIQ is available in English and Spanish. The software offers several improvements, including an indication of the percentage of image sent and received, improved image reception settings, and a more modern interface, among other things. You can download NYLNIQ by clicking the link at Discargo D M M S S T V 1.13 YONIQ on the Grupo Radio Galena website. You are listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Guatemala's first satellite, a CubeSat called Quetzal-1, was deployed from the International Space Station on April 28th. Its primary mission is to test a sensor for remote data acquisition for natural resource management, which could be used to monitor water quality in inland water bodies. The satellite is part of the Japanese Kibo CubeSat program, a product of the cooperation between, among others, the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, Universidad del Valle de Guatemala, and other institutions. The satellite's telemetry 4.8K GMSK downlink is 437.200 MHz. The Quetzal One project team director is Guatemalan engineer José Bagur, TJ8JAV, a graduate of the Universidad del Valle. And finally this week, there's nothing like international cooperation to get a problem-solving job done, even in a virtual environment. The Global Space App's COVID-19 Challenge is what it is called, but what it really amounts to is a virtual hackathon. Scientists, makers, coders, and anyone who's technology-minded are among those invited to crunch some data to find solutions to issues impacting the planet as a direct result of the pandemic. And this time, they're doing it all in a virtual environment. Working in teams, the problem solvers will have 48 hours to analyze data 
gathered from satellites that have been observing changes on the Earth and its environment. The project is being overseen in the U.S. by NASA, in Japan by JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, and the ESA, the European Space Agency. The agencies will judge the entries. According to a press release, the hackathon will focus on how people and the economy have responded to the virus and will then try to devise solutions to their challenges. The hackathon is taking place over a 48-hour period on May 30th and 31st. Organizers believe the outcome of the challenge could be of great benefit to Earth science specialists at each of their agencies. Participants will study data that includes information gathered from the missions of Sentinel-1, Sentinel-2, and Sentinel-5P from the European Copernicus Satellite Program. JAXA will make data available from its satellite missions, including GOSAT, GOSAT-2, and GPM-DPR. This is not the first Space Apps event to be held. In fact, Space Apps 2019 had more than 29,000 participants in 71 countries. This is, however, the first global hackathon being organized as a special event to be done virtually. The annual Space Apps event that traditionally involves team collaborations at various sites around the world is scheduled to take place in October. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.